The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. In what follows, you will receive a close look at the biblical basis of and use for creeds. This was a paper that Dr. Piper presented at the Reformation 500 Conference at Liberty University held in late September 2017. I trust that you'll enjoy it as much as I have and that you'll benefit from it as you seek to advance a confessional approach to biblical truth, one in which we declare what we believe and hold fast to it. Enjoy. From its inception, the Reformation used confessions and catechisms, and we've heard already a good bit about this, to promulgate its doctrinal and practical understanding of the Christian faith. Luther produced two catechisms, early Lutheran summarized their faith in the Augsburg Confession. Calvin produced two catechisms. The uh, Continental Reform, the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the British Church produced 39 articles, and the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms, English Baptist to the London Confession of Faith. Today, however, a significant portion of evangelical Christianity rejects the use of confessions and catechisms. The commonly heard confession is no creed but the Bible, no confession but Jesus. This rejection is based on the conviction that since the Bible alone is sufficient to guide us, creeds are man-made additions that detract from the Bible. As I shall demonstrate, no conflict exists between the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and the use of creeds. In fact, the Bible commands the church to make and use creeds. I will seek to show that and then to seek to show something of their purpose and how we are to make our own confession. And I'm basing uh, these remarks on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul commands Timothy to hold fast to the standard of sound words and to guard the tradition or the treasure entrusted to him. Let me begin, though, by giving a definition of what I mean, what we're discussing. The term creed is derived from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. Your personal creed states what you believe and what is important to you. Hence, in reality, the statement, no creed but the Bible, is a creed. You're saying, I believe that neither I nor the church needs any other creed. The Bible alone is sufficient to guide me. Now, throughout the history, the church has used creeds to summarize what she believes the Bible taught. Her creeds and confessions give a, gave a precise summary of cardinal doctrines, the Apostles' Creed, our detailed refutation, our articulation of a particular truth under attack, the Nicene Creed or Chalcedonian. Although they differ in form, a creed usually consists of a series of brief, succinct statements expressed as I or we believe, a catechism uses questions and answers to teach the truth, a confession normally is a more detailed exposition of the truth. I shall refer to creeds, catechism, and confessions by the general term creeds in the remainder of this paper. 
the biblical basis for creeds. Having defined what I mean by creeds, let us answer the question, are they biblical? 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, God commands the use of creeds. Many opponents of creeds argue that creeds detract from the sufficiency of Scripture. On the contrary, Scripture teaches us to make and use creeds. In these two verses, we find a two-fold commandment. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard the treasure entrusted to you. In these two verses, Paul gives a two-fold summary of his message. First, he refers to the standard of sound words. Sound words express simply the truths taught by the apostle and by Scripture. Words are the statements of truth that Timothy received from Paul, who was taught directly by Christ. The term sound means true and accurate. We use the expression of a doctor. He gave a sound diagnosis. Paul had communicated these words to Timothy in a summary form that he calls standard or form. The word Paul uses is a compound form of the word which we translate type, tupos, and the compound is hupotuposis, or hupotuposis. Paul uses tupos in Romans six seventeen, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form, tupos, of teaching to which you were committed. The content of the gospel was given to him in a summary statement, a form. In 1 Timothy 1.16, he uses hupatupasis to mean example. He says he is an example of one who received God's mercy and patience. Moulton and Milligan's lexicon gives the meaning of this word sketch in outline form or a summary account. Art and Gingrich state that in this passage, 2 Timothy 1.13, it means a standard. Paul declared that he had given Timothy a form or pattern of apostolic doctrine. He was not referring to the entirety of his inspired corpus, but to the summary that he entrusted to Timothy. This interpretation is reinforced in the parallel command in verse 14, when he speaks of the treasure which has been entrusted. In other words, this form or pattern of sound doctrine is a treasure that Paul entrusts to the guardianship of Timothy. Paul refers to a specific summary that he entrusted to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.2, he refers to the stewardship and he commanded Timothy to entrust it to others. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The passing on of the apostolic tradition. Paul, therefore, is referring to a summary of apostolic tradition that he calls the traditions. He described this summary, for example, in 1 Corinthians eleven two. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions that I delivered to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Interestingly, we note here 
that the traditions were not simply those doctrines revealed or written in the epistles, but those that Paul communicated verbally. The summary of the apostolic message. Now, tradition scares us. These traditions differ from the traditions taught later by the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic traditions are not summaries of biblical doctrine, but rather teachings added to the teaching of the Bible. We would deny, then, traditions in the sense of Romanism, but affirm the apostolic traditions that the Apostle Paul commands us to hold to and to communicate. Now, what Paul commands here in 2 Timothy is reinforced by the Bible's own use of creeds. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we find the great confession repeated to this day in every synagogue on their worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema. Paul himself quoted a number of confessional statements or creeds. In 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The term translated in the New American Standard Bible as common confession literally means confessedly, emphasizing that it was a common agreement or commitment of the church. In 2 Timothy 2, 11-13, Paul delivered one of his trustworthy statements. And all of these are but traditions or creeds or summaries. There he wrote, For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. My argument, therefore, is that the Bible teaches us to use creeds. And we can add to the exegetical arguments several other inferential reasons. Let me give you a couple. First, every Bible translation is to a degree a confession of what the translator or the translators believe the Bible teaches. By nature of translation, no translation of the Hebrew and Greek text is neutral. Translation involves interpretation that involves theological commitment. Let me give you an example. We compare the NSB's translation of Acts 16.34. We just heard a reference to that section with that of the ESV. Now, I happen not to care much for the ESV, but here that trumps the New American Standard. New American Standard, also the New KJV, translates the verse, And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The ESV translation is, Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. You see the difference? The ESV says, he puts, it puts the participle with having believed. The ESV puts it with rejoicing. The Greek participle has to go with rejoicing. It cannot go with believe grammatically. But because the editors of this translation would have had a credo-baptist presupposition, uh, they mistranslate the verse. Uh, but another inferential argument. Really, every sermon is a preacher's creed about what the text means. 
no creed but Jesus or would simply be get up and read the scriptures. To preach is making an expression, I believe this text teaches this. Now, I would add the church's creed protects us then from the tyranny of eccentric and heretical ideas of an individual expressed in a sermon, part of what we just heard in the previous paper. Remember, safety is found in a multitude of counselors. And so very briefly, rather than violate the sufficiency of Scripture, we see that the use of creeds is required by Scripture. They do not challenge the authority of the Bible. They do not add to the Bible, but simply summarize what they believe the Bible teaches. The Westminster Confession of Faith rightly defines the relation of creeds and confessions to Scripture, quoting, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. So the exegetical basis for creed making. Well, then the exegetical basis for the practical purpose of creeds. Having determined then that the biblical warrant, and again, this some overlap with what we've heard for creeds, let us see what the Bible teaches about using creeds, again, from this text. In 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, we learn that the creed is to serve as an apt summary of the orthodox faith for church communion, communication of faith, as well as defense of the faith. Take the first verse. Retain or hold to the standard. To retain or hold to means to keep as a special possession. When we hold to it, it serves as our standard of communion and communication. And that's the language we heard then in the early subscription statements. So first it served as a standard for communion. One of the primary things a creed does for a church is to promote unity. Amos asked the question, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment or an agreement? We cannot walk together unless we are agreed. Think how useful it is for a congregation and for those who visit the congregation to know what that church believes. What's it going to teach and preach? It's for this reason that the Dutch and German Reformed churches refer to their confessional statements as the three forms of unity. The church is not adding to the Bible, but rather saying... We believe this is what the Bible teaches. If you're going to join with us, you need to be aware of these things. In fact, it will stop schism and division. And all creedal churches, supposedly, I don't know about my denomination much longer, but the office bearers express their unity by subscribing to the doctrines agreed upon in the creed. This commitment guarantees doctrinal harmony. Such churches do not declare that those who do not agree with them and all these doctrines are no churches. As long as these other churches agree on the commonly accepted doctrines of evangelical Christianity, we will determine them to be legitimate churches. Some object that the use of creeds to promote communion binds the conscience by forcing people to conform. I'd point out that in Presbyterian communions, individual members are not required to subscribe to a creed. They're received on the basis of a credible profession of faith. In addition to a, a manifest uh, evidence of repentance and faith, that they hold to all the basic doctrines of evangelical Christianity. 
But even here, unity is protected. Since they know the church's creed, members will be aware of what she confesses and teaches. They will agree to expose themselves to that teaching and no way to oppose it in their fellowship. But even in those churches such as the German and Dutch Reformed churches where the members also subscribe, we must remember the church is a voluntary organization. We do not live in a country where we may only belong to one church. None, therefore, is bound to submit to any particular creed unless he or she freely unites with that church. So the creed, holding to it, promotes communion, but also promotes communication of the truth. This use involves both interpretation and instruction. Because creeds summarize the teaching of the Bible, they are a great tool to use in the interpretation of Scripture. Calvin made much of this uh, in his own catechetical instruction. As As evangelical Christians, we believe that the Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible does not contradict itself. Creeds articulate a consensus on the major truths of the Bible. As people learn the catechism, for example, it gives them a grid by which to interpret the Bible. Westcott wrote with respect to the Apostles' Creed, Such a summary as the Apostles' Creed serves as a clue in reading the Bible. It presents to us the salient features in the revelation which earlier experience has proved to be turning points of spiritual knowledge. It offers centers, so to speak, round which we may group our thoughts and to which we may refer the lessons laid open to us. It keeps us from wandering in the bypaths aimlessly or at our will by not fixing arbitrary limits to inquiry, but making the great lines along which believers have moved from the first. Let me give you an example. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 11, that God regretted making Saul king. Now, the immediate impression is that God changed his mind. But a young child instructed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism definition of God knows that that cannot be a proper interpretation because that child has learned that God is unchangeable and his decree is irrevocable. So while not yet grasping the exact meaning of the language, even the young reader trained in catechism will avoid false interpretation. Closely connected to interpretation is instruction. What more efficient way to give young Christians a compendium of the faith than by teaching them the catechisms and confessions of the church? In the act of proving the Westminster Larger Catechism, a journalist filmed at the Scottish Presbyterian Church in 1648 commended this catechism as a rich treasure for increasing knowledge among the people of God. I think I've got time for a little anecdote. Moody was on a preaching tour in London. He was... At a home of his host, a wealthy man, and there was a man who had come to inquire of Moody about what he said about prayer, and what do you mean by prayer, and how do you pray, and just as he was asking these questions about prayer, the host's young daughter, not yet in her teens, is walking down the steps. Her father turns to her, and he asks her by her name, what is prayer? And she, as Moody says, she got in her recitation mode. And she proceeded to give the Shorter Catechism definition of prayer, which is most profound. And Moody says, ah, the Shorter Catechism. It's a great tool for instruction. Now, in addition to serving as an apt summary of the Orthodox faith for communion and communication, creeds served as an instrument 
for defending the faith, as we've also heard. It has an apologetic use. Paul commends this use in verse 14. Guard. Guard the treasure. This is a military term. Jude commands us to contend for the faith. Jude 3. The faith is under attack and the church is entrusted with the responsibility of defending it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Part of the responsibility entailed in being the pillar and support of truth is the defense of the truth, and the creed enables us to do this. For example, many of you have experienced a visit or visits from Mormon or Jehovah Witness cultists who, when you ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They answer, yes. You, therefore, must clarify your question. So you ask, do you mean he is eternally God, equal with God the Father? Do you deny that he was created? Throughout the history of the church, creeds have served this purpose. Originally, the church developed creeds to guard against error. They continue to serve this purpose. What better way to expose the error of a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness than by using the question and answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. What a powerful Christological statement. What a great refuge against all error. We must guard the truth and guard the church because false teachers will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20.30. In summary, I've sought to establish that God teaches the church to use creeds for an experimental commitment to and defense of the faith. Creeds are a rich treasure entrusted to us. They give us a basis for communion and communication of the truth of the Bible. They serve as a litmus test to protect the church and truth entrusted to her. Rather than replace Scripture, they are scriptural in origin and content. I count myself blessed to be a member of a confessing church that adheres to a thorough creed. We do have time for one or two questions. Dr. Yes. Could you explain how a creed or confession is the exercise of the legitimate authority of the church to declare a doctrine? Yes, I think that last passage uh, from Timothy on the church being the pillar in support of truth, coupled with the um, commandment then that... Uh, Timothy, who was an evangelist, which means he had an office in the church, was to hold to these apostolic doctrines. We, we tie that together. And, of course, if you look, if you look at Bannerman's two volumes, he gets into the authority of the church, and we see then the, the authority of the church. But it's, it's part of the teaching, exegetical teaching ministry of the church. And, again, part of the new creeds, but, but Bible also has a low ecclesiology, doesn't it, normally? And so we have a low view of the church, a low view of the creeds. It's kind of a vicious circle.
Yes. In addition to the benefit of the content of the catechism, um, would you say that there's a benefit in just the very act of, of catechism? Ah, well? I get to tell my Warfield story. When Warfield writes on the on Westminster Standards, he, he gives this supposedly true story. It's a, it's a town, whatever the Wild West was, uh, centuries or decades before him, and there's utter chaos. And these two men are walking down the street of this town in the midst of chaos, perfectly sober and, and calm. And as they pass, man A says to man B, what is man's chief end? And B turns around and says to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And A says, I thought you were a catechism boy. And B said, and I thought you were. There is a simply a emotional, spiritual integrity that comes even from the exercise uh, and the use of memorization and so many other things that go up to making a man and a woman. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.